0: Alright, you can open your Bibles, if you have them, to Exodus chapter 20. That's the bulk of where we're going to be tonight, is Exodus chapter 20. Um, we're going to be mostly concerned tonight with the Ten Commandments and looking a little bit more in depth at the Ten Commandments that are going to be given to Moses and the children of Israel there at Sinai. Um And then my plan for next week is to go into the building of the tabernacle and look more in depth at the building of the tabernacle to close out Exodus. Then the following week, Leviticus and Numbers probably together, then Deuteronomy after that, and then we'll be on into Joshua, Judges, the conquest of the the land of Canaan, um, and then setting up ourselves to kind of investigate the kings and the prophets and all of that kind of together. So, um, and that will take some time to get through. So uh, that's kind of what's coming over the next few weeks. Again, just to remind you, uh, for anybody that hasn't been here since the beginning, uh, basically what we've been doing for the last several months is looking at the Old Testament story and uh, diving into the both the geography of where the people are at uh, when, when they're, you know, do, going about doing all of these things, we started all the way back with Abraham and his tracked his, you know, traveling all across the the land, and then we're also connecting not only the geography to the and the significant places from where the characters are at, but also making theological connections as well and helping establish what is going on in the Bible as a whole and what sort of threads are being opened in the Old Testament very early on, that we see closed out. Sometimes we see closed out with Jesus in the New Testament. Sometimes we see closed out in Revelation and, and on. So it, it's helping us to kind of form a, a, an overarching story across the entire Bible and helping to kind of paint that picture. Now, you'll remember where we last left off, you may not be able to see that, but all of that is the text right there in your packet, if you got one of those when you came in, uh, under the review section you remember that where we last left off, the children of Israel have come out of the land of Egypt and have crossed the sea. God is part of the waters. Uh, they've crossed the sea. The last little Hebrew makes it to the shore and all the water comes crashing back on the, uh, the Pharaoh's army and they are all washed away. And the people are going, wandering in the wilderness down south toward Mount Sinai. And along the way there develops these themes On their journey from the sea down to Sinai, where they're beginning to grumble at everything that's going on, and the Lord is continuing to test them. Because what we're seeing is that God is bringing out of His people, uh, or bringing to the surface rather, what is in their heart. And He's preparing them, like a father does his children, to give them the law. And the law is going to be a great benefit to them. We're going to see the fuller meaning of the law uh, and when we get uh, a little bit later on in Leviticus. But the, the law is going to be a great benefit to them. It's a great mercy to them. And it, it, it tells them how they can come into God's presence. And it's a very, very important thing, a very important theme that really is doesn't wrap up until the end of Revelation. But it, it's, a, it's a great mercy to them that they be welcomed into God's, God's presence. But in order to get them to that place he has to prepare them first. And so he tests them with thirst. He tests them with hunger. He tests them in a number of different ways. And what is produced out of them is grumbling. He gives them a couple of commands. And what is produced out of them is disobedience, because they are a very stubborn people, we're going to find out. And so uh, God has appointed his man uh, Moses to wander through uh, or to take these people to Sinai and to go up from Sinai through the wilderness and into the land of Canaan, Um, at least at first that's kind of what's supposed to happen. And along the way, uh, Moses is taking the people, they're grumbling a little bit, and what we see is that Moses meets up with his father-in-law, Jethro, and his wife and children, and there Jethro watches Moses do his thing, and he says, Moses, you're crazy, What you're doing is is really bizarre, and you're you're sitting here, and you're gonna wear yourself out. So you you can't do this. You're gonna have to pluralize your leadership, and you're gonna have to let other people make some decisions. And so. He begins to do that and listens to the voice of, of, of Jethro and, and, and takes his counsel and pluralizes the leadership. And so we see a group of people, which will later be a pattern for the Sanhedrin in, uh, in Judaism coming up later. But 71 or so people begin to make decisions on behalf of Israel and lead Israel and counsel Israel as they, uh, as they go through the wilderness. And then in in chapter nineteen, they get to the base of Mount Sinai, which uh, for Israel is where God begins to establish His covenant with them once again. And we saw over the course of uh, the the entire Bible, really, we start out in uh, Genesis in the Garden of Eden with what we see later referred to in the prophets, the Garden of Eden as the Mountain of God, where uh, Adam. Functions as, if you will, kind of like a high priest who has access to God in um, the the white hot center of His presence, the Holy of Holies, as it were, the Garden of Eden. But what happens to Adam? He sins. He's supposed to have dominion. He's supposed to rule and reign. He's supposed to spread the Garden of Eden out. And what do we see in chapter three? But that he lets an unclean serpent in, and it tempts him, and he falls. And what happens to a a priest who sins in the presence of God? Can he just stumble into the Holy of Holies anymore? No, absolutely not. So he is ousted out of the garden and he and his wife uh, sent packing, as it were. And then what happens later is it takes 500 some years over the course of Israel's history before finally God is not only prepared a people, but he's prepared a leader and he's taken them out of slavery and now he has them back in his presence once again at Mount Sinai. And Sinai has this sort of threefold uh, picture to it. You have the very top of Mount Sinai, which is where God's presence, the white hot center of his presence is. And there's only one person that's allowed up there at the top, which is Moses. And then a little bit down the mountain is where the priests are allowed. And then further down at the base is where the people are allowed to go. And this is going to be sort of a pattern of the tabernacle, and the temple that's going to come much much later on is this sort of threefold presence. The top of the mountain being like the Holy of Holies. The middle of the mountain where the priests are allowed to go like the holy place. And then the base of the mountain like the courtyard where the people are allowed to access. So God has taken much great lengths, gone through great lengths to prepare for himself a people. To craft out of that Abraham, prepare himself a people, bring them into the land of Egypt. Bring them back out of the land of Egypt, out from under the the house of of Pharaoh in slavery and then back into his presence once again. And so uh, where we left off was essentially seeing that like Adam, who is allowed to be in the presence of of God and is in charge of spreading dominion throughout the earth and uh, really ruling and conquering the world, as it were, with the Garden of Eden, now Israel is charged with that, to be a kingdom of priests to the rest of the world. That's what Israel's job is. It's labeled right there in Exodus chapter 19. You are to be a kingdom of priests. You are to give the rest of the world access to me. They're going to be able to access me through you and through the reign that you establish under my kingdom here on earth, which we obviously see uh, Israel also fails to do. Sorry about that. Let me get that back. That's important. Um. Questions about that? Any uh, things from last week that were unclear that you've thought about? And you go, I need to know more about this before we go on. Okie dokie. So we start with uh, the Ten Commandments, which is often referred to, you'll hear it referred to sometimes as the Decalogue, which basically just means the Ten Words. That's all that means. fancy name for Ten Words, but the, the Decalogue. And what we see in the Ten Commandments is that it's actually divided into two parts, or what we see is two tables. And um, these two tables are really actually fundamentally important to understanding what the Ten Commandments and what the purpose of the Ten Commandments really is. So the first table or the first half of the Ten Commandments, which depending on who you ask, it either comprises the first five commandments or the first four commandments, but the first table of the commandments um, basically describes how God's people relate to him. So if you look at commandments one through, at, at the very least, one through four, you're going to see it very abundantly clear that, that all of them are talking about a very similar thing, and that is how does how do the people of God relate to God himself? But then you have the second... Half of the table, which is commandments, at the very least, commandments 6 through 10, which describe how the people relate to each other. So it's two different aspects of the commandments of God. And the reason that these, are, uh, these commandments are really important and are really fundamental to the entire law is that what we're going to see in Deuteronomy is that the whole law really is summed up in these 10 commandments. And what we're going to see in Deuteronomy is that where you have one commandment listed, the law is really just uh, making explicit what that commandment actually means. As an example, we have the command uh, number six, do not, you remember what it is? Commit murder. Commit murder. Hey, awesome. Whoever has that, you get four stars. Uh, do Do what? All right. But then what do you do with seven? Because to me, seven looks like a gun. Seven, don't Number seven, like the seven when you're true. Yeah, number seven, your wife will do six if you do seven. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, there you go. Well, uh, uh, wisdom from Blake. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> But uh, no, seriously, uh, <laughs> I don't remember where I was now. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> Number six, um, but this is important because we have the command: do not murder. Well, then we have we start to have some uh, really kind of strange laws about like how you build your house. You build your roof on your house to be a certain angle and a certain pitch with certain dimensions and certain uh, things at the very end, in, in case something falls off the roof and crushes your neighbor underneath. So the the premise of that law is comes back to commandment number six, don't murder. Well, if the, if the person's life is valuable, so valuable that you cannot take it, then you're also responsible for things like uh, homicide when that happens. Uh, incidental manslaughter. Uh, th- that, that takes place. You, you have to build your roof in such a way that it prioritizes your neighbor's life in case they be crushed by some of the things. That you... So you, you see that these laws that seem a little bit strange are really just building out what these Ten Commandments actually mean. And say again? Yeah, I mean, we, we do the same thing today. Yeah, we, we, um, speeding laws are there so that you care for your neighbor and you don't kill them. So that we don't just ram a big metal object, you know, right into their house. Yeah, you know I mean, like it, that's 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 important. And so we have those kind of laws to help protect people's lives because we value people's lives. Um, it's the same kind of thing that we're going to see here. But these these uh, two tables of the law are actually really important. Now, the fifth commandment, which is sort of the pivotal one, uh, is it working? There we go. The fifth commandment is the bridge between the two tables. So you have the fifth commandment, which is? Honor your mother and father. Every parent has that one down. The fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. And um, this one is particularly important, but you can see a little bit of the confusion there because uh, is that how you relate to other people, Uh, like your mother and your father? Or is it how you relate to God? Because there's a promise that comes at the end of it. you remember what the promise is? That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Well, you're kicked out of the land for sinning against God. So is this how you relate to uh, everyone else or is this how you relate to God? And like so often is the answer, I think the answer is yes. It's, it's a little bit of both. And we're going to explore that in just a little bit. But... Uh, these two tables are really important. And one of the reasons why they're really important, when we get to the New Testament, Jesus is asked a very important question. Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds, well, the, first, the most important one is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second one is like it, and is also really important, which is, Love your neighbor as yourself. The answer that he gives is, well, the most important is the first table of the law. The second most important is the second table of law. The most important is the first five commandments. The second is the second five commandments. And what does he then say? On these, hang all the law and the prophets. Because those ten commandments are expounded in the actual law. The law is uh, built on the foundation of the Ten Commandments. So, what what he says is the greatest and the second greatest commandments is that he is summarizing tables one and two of the law. Does that make sense? Yes. All right. Good deal. Um, I'll wait till you you have that. Um, but. As, uh, and we see that in, in Matthew chapter 22, 36 to 40. You, can, you see that there in your verse reference. We won't read it, but you know the passage probably pretty well. Um, the, uh, so as we dive into the Decalogue or the, the Ten Commandments, we see that the first commandment gives us the object of our worship. The first commandment gives us the object of our worship. What is the first commandment? Look there, Exodus 20, verse 3 I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, I wanted to include verse 2 in there because I think it's really important that the entire Ten Commandments, all of them, are built on the foundation. I am the Lord. I conquered Egypt. I pulled you out of slavery I separated the waters. I killed Pharaoh's army. I did all of these things. You saw me conquer all of these gods. This is who I am. And so, because of that, I make the rules. That's the important part. That's the fundamental part that we have to understand about the entire law. God makes the rules. Now, question. Why is he making rules? Do you remember? Why is he making rules? So he can live with them. Better, so they can live with him, right? So that they can live with him. Now, he can live wherever he wants, but it's so that they can live with him. There are strict rules that govern how his people can enter into his presence. We're gonna see this becomes a very fundamental piece of the very last little paragraph in the book of Exodus where the tabernacle is built, Moses is ready to go in, cloud settles over the doorway, and Moses can't enter it. And he's, you're left at the end of Exodus going, why can't he walk in? That's what the book of Leviticus is for, to explain exactly why he can't walk in. You can't just saunter into his presence. There's a fundamental principle about the entire Bible that you can't just walk into God's presence. He is not lackadaisical about his holiness it's a fundamental uh, problem between us and him is our sin it's fundamental and so it has to be dealt with and what we also see is that God does never compromises on it you remember the story in I believe it's Samuel where the the Ark of the Covenant has gone into the hands of the Philistines and it's come back and um, it's on the ox cart, and the ox cart is less than steady. And the Ark of the Covenant starts to weeble and wobble. And we know, well, weebles and wobbles, do not they wobble, but they don't fall down, right? That, that's a bad illustration. It starts to fall. And there's a man named Uzzah who's nearby. And Uzzah, what does he do? He, he reaches out his hand because, well, God forbid, the Ark of the Covenant hit the ground. And so Uzzah reaches out his hand to catch it. That's better, right? Surely God will forgive. I know I'm not supposed to touch the Ark of the Covenant. I know that is a strict no-no. But surely God will forgive me in this case because after all, I'm trying to save it from hitting the ground. That's absolutely not what happens and Uzzah hits the ground before, before the Ark does. <laughs> Uzzah hits the ground dead. As R.C. Sproul once put it, which I think is, is just great, if Uzzah's hand was holier than the dirt, he wouldn't have died. <laughs> but, but it wasn't. Uzzah perished because God's rules are unflinchingly rigid. You don't touch the Ark of the Covenant. And he did. God's holiness, there's no compromises. And we're going to see this throughout the scriptures. And some of the laws that we see sometimes are a little bit hard to swallow. Sometimes they're a little tough when we read them. That seems really harsh. But remember, God doesn't have to give them his presence But his presence is fundamental to life. So it's a great mercy to them that he dwell with them. But there are rules that come with it. All right. So uh, it it, it determines the object of our worship. And not only that, but the Israelites, it seems, is what it's communicating, is that the Israelites are not to bring another God into his presence. They're not to bring another God into. Into His presence. I had a professor uh, one time in college, a little bit of a liberal professor, that told me that this statement, "You shall have no other gods before me," was a statement of priority. That you couldn't you couldn't take another god and exalt them to place number one, regardless of how many gods there are. Don't care. You just can't have them above me. And I think that's rubbish. And the reason I think that's rubbish is because the rest of the Bible, <laughs> there's never a time where Israel is allowed to have a God, that, God doesn't, that Yahweh doesn't get really upset. And you don't even have to read that many chapters later. Twelve chapters later, in chapter 32, they will build a calf, and they will begin to worship it, and they will say, Behold, the one that took you out of Egypt is right here. And God is going to tell Moses, If you don't get down there before me, I'm going to kill them all. (laughs) So there's not a scenario where God is okay with them ever having another God. What that word actually means, you shall have no other gods before me, is to my face. You shall have no other gods to my face. And where is God's presence? Everywhere. So where is it that they could actually have a God that it wouldn't be to his face? Nowhere. So uh, it seems as though they're not allowed to ever bring a God into his, into his presence. It, 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 he's limiting um, uh, what they can actually do. Now, uh, the second commandment we see actually limits our worship. And, and, it, and it basically um, spells out exactly not only uh, what they are to worship, namely Yahweh and Yahweh alone, but how they are to worship. And, and maybe even further, you could say how they are to not worship. Um, so when God calls uh, Israel uh, to himself and he gives them the law, he, he tells them not to worship any other gods, but he also tells them that they can't worship him through images. And so we see in the building of the calf in Exodus chapter 32, they've really kind of kicked out rule one and two commandment one and two. Not only have they made a graven image, which they're not to do, and they say, this is the God that took us out of Egypt, but the image that they make is a calf, which comes straight out of Egypt. So the odds are what they're actually doing is saying, this is a Egyptian God, and there's also an image for it, graven image. So commandments one and two just thrown right out the window right away. And uh, so it's not good, but what God is telling them is that you cannot worship me through images. And so what we see is God is actually putting a limit, not just on what you are to worship, but how you are to worship God. So it seems that God has always been concerned about the how of worship. Not just the what of worship, but also the how of worship. This is part of the reason why... There are some things in worship services we don't do simply because there is no biblical precedent for doing them. Interpretive dance. <laughs> there are a number of churches that will engage in things like interpretive dance or there's, there, there, for a while there was the emergent church movement. I don't know if you remember this back in 07-ish. Uh, what's that? Oh man, uh if you ever walked into an emergent church worship service, there was there were some uh some crazy things that went on actually. Uh some you'd have back here in the corner, imagine like no pews in here, just chairs, and back there in the corner, you'd have uh an easel and maybe like a sandbox where you could like paint to God, and then over here in this corner, you'd have uh where where you could maybe Draw, or you could dance, or you could do something else to God. And what, what did you say? Juggle, I mean, what? I mean, There were just a number of different things and they would have these like corners like we used to have in kindergarten where you'd have like the little centers that you'd go around to. And they, they have these sort of things set up in the worship service and they would kind of allow you to express yourself in a number of different capacities. But it, what becomes clear as you read the Old Testament and the New Testament is there are certain patterns of worship that are described for us. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs is told to us. Do that. Prayer is told to us. Do that. The reading of God's Word, it's told to us. Do that. Both Old Testament and New Testament. A lot of things in that regard have not changed about our worship services. Those things have to be a a, a fundamental part of our worship services. And so there's there's a reason why we don't do some of those things is because Well, God governs how people access him. Another really big fundamental one, this will sound pretty obvious to you, I think, but uh, it's not obvious uh, on the the church as a whole. Um, God has determined that in the new covenant, he will only be worshiped through Christ. Only and ever through Christ. And there are churches that will call themselves churches, that will attempt to worship God through some other means. Uh, That could be other religions even. Uh, Islam would try to worship God through another means other than Christ. But then there are people, there are churches that try to worship God through a false understanding of Christ. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness. Um, God is the one that determines how you are to worship Him. And He has said unequivocally, It is only through Christ that you will have access to me, period. And so our worship services should be Christ-centered. That's the reason that the gospel is preached. It should be preached every Sunday. That's the reason that we should sing about what Christ has done for us. That's the reason we should remind ourselves of our sins and confess our sins. That's the reason all of those things should be a part of our worship service is because we have to remind ourselves it is only through Christ that we have access to God. No other reason. Yes?
1: Go ahead. Okay, so not to worship him through images. And then, like, all throughout Leviticus, they have all these, like, really specific, like, put tassels here, do this there, make it look like this. Uh, what is, like, do you see what I'm saying? Yes. Where I'm like,
0: that's... Yeah. Confusing? What the images that he's talking about here are images of him. So that's that's the first part of that. The second part of that is all of those those... Uh, things that they're told to like put in the tabernacle and put throughout the tabernacle all have a very distinct purpose. Um, m- many of them we're going to see are going to be connected back to the garden, okay. and uh, so. As of
1: this point, everything I've read, I'm like that's a lot of description. You yes,
0: yeah. Oh, there's 20 chapters. <laughs> right. I mean, nearly. I mean, just about 20 chapters of how do you build a tabernacle? And here I made this guy over here really good at sewing, and he's going to. He's going to build this whole tabernacle for you and make it look really awesome. And you're left, you're left reading whatever it is, 17 chapters or so of Exodus, going, "What in the world is the reason for this big description?" Because he not only he tells Moses how to do it, and then you see Moses telling the people, and it's the same. It's the same. It's like you could have just hit copy and paste, select all, copy paste, and you have the you have basically the same thing. And uh, you're left going, "Why?" But back to the whole garden thing which we'll see ne- a little bit more next week is that a lot of those images the stones that are on the priest's garments and things like this are directly connected back to the garden of eden and so they're establishing a garden of eden that's mobile a, a mobile eden as it were that's going to be going with them into the into the promised land and so um they're they're really important but it just if you don't know that it doesn't seem like it seems like just you know inane like details and so, and sometimes it is in any details you know you got to feel like I can't go through this again. <laughs> but, um, okay. Um, so God has determined how, uh, how we, we worship. The third commandment we're go- we see uh, gives us the reverence of our worship. Remember the third commandment? Look back there, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. Uh, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And that is not only just saying uh, his, his name out loud in some sort of profanity, but it is, it is also applying his name to something that he is not in and has nothing to do with. It, it's associating his name with the mundane or the earthly or the terrestrial. It's taking his name in a capacity that is uh, describing it in any less than holy ways. Um, so, does that make sense? It's associating it with, with the mundane. That, so, it's, it's taking his name in vain in that regard. Somebody have a question? Did you hear a question? Go ahead, Jeff. Images, yeah, go ahead. Does that mean that like, you know, churches shouldn't have like meetings of Jesus? Ooh, or, that's like, a good question. Yeah. Of, like, yeah. So there is, there's, there's pretty heavy debate on, on, there's people that fall on either side of the aisle on that. Uh, so some people will say, absolutely not. We shouldn't do that. Um, you'll, you'll notice like in a, in the movie Ben-Hur, where Jesus is not shown in the, in the movie. Um, and it's because of that. I think the the person that was doing that had that kind of take on that Jesus should not be shown, um, from my understanding. Anyway, Uh And uh, so there are people that fall on that side of the aisle, and then there are obviously people on the other side that say Jesus actually became flesh. He made himself an image, uh, basically, and he became the image of God for us. Um, So there are people that use that reasoning as well. I don't know that we have clear direction on that as it pertains to Jesus himself. I couldn't say definitively, one way or the other. I could say, it's a debate. Follow your conscience. Trust the Holy Spirit will guide you. Do what but don't yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe so, maybe maybe that would be unwise i don 't know um, okay, so uh, regard and so the third commandment regards our, our reverence for worship. the fourth commandment gives us the regularity of our worship, the regularity of our worship now. This is where things begin to be a a good bit interesting because we do also have some disagreement as far as how far we take this and how we're to understand this now in the New Covenant. You have two pretty big factions, I would say, inside the church, inside, I mean, the Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, Christ-centered church. You have two big factions. One One group will say, well the fourth commandment is the only one that's not repeated in the New Testament and so it doesn't have the binding authority that the other nine do. Has anybody ever heard that before? You've heard that? There's some nods. Okay. Uh, I hear your heads rattle. It's good. I'm just kidding. Uh, So there's a group that will say that. There's another group that will say, uh, actually, the law doesn't stop at the end of the Old Testament. In fact, this, in, this commandment in particular is not rooted in the commandments that are given to Moses. This goes all the way back to creation. This goes all the way back to God's creation of the world. Anybody heard that before? Okay, uh, some of that. So two big factions, how we, how we actually deal with this particular commandment, but it, 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 it gives us the regularity of our worship. Now, the first, fourth commandment, it seems, is rooted in the rest that God took after he exercised dominion over the formlessness and the voidness of the world. Remember, we saw in Genesis 1, uh, 2, you see there, uh, you got it in your verse packet there. Uh, Genesis 1, verse 2, it's the first one on the back. Um, the Earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Uh, remember this is this picture of formlessness and void is um, we talked about several months ago, you've all slept since then is to, tohu vabohu, which is just insanity. okay there's chaos waters that the spirit is hovering over. And so this formlessness and voidness is a bit of a chaotic mess. And God speaks into it and begins to form out of it not only the Garden of Eden, but mankind and all creatures that walk on the face of the earth and an earth to actually live in. And so what he ends up putting Adam and Eve in the middle of is something that he initially had dominion over. So that he took what was crazy and what was chaotic and what was formless and void, and he made it into something. And then what did he do? What did he do? He, he rested. So we see in chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 3, um, look there, second verse, he says, uh, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So here God tames the formlessness and the voidness and he he rests. And then what does God do? Well, just before that, when he creates mankind, he gives Adam a similar kind of dominion over the created order. He, he, he says... Uh, uh, let us make man in our image. And what does that mean? Let's give him dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the land. And he tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And so part of what it means to be made in the image of God is to do what God has done. He's just made creation out of the formlessness and the voidness. Now they're taking what he's already created and they're spreading it out and they're, they're subduing the rest of the world. They're charged with that. Um, as we see, uh, so we, uh, let me fill in that blank there. He says, uh, so we must assume that Adam then is similarly resting on the seventh day since God made it holy. He makes it holy after he created Adam. And so Adam is patterning himself after God and having dominion over the, uh, the things that God had given him. But obviously Adam fails. And so Adam is kicked out of the garden. Um, so then Israel, in becoming a kingdom of priests and uh, being ushered back into the presence of God on his mountain, uh, they're being charged to take the same dominion now to be sort of the new Adam and take the kingdom of God and spread it around the world. Be a kingdom of priests. Give people access to me. And how are they to do it? But they're to usher people into the same holy rest that Adam once had. That's what they're to do. Uh, They're to bring people into that same holy rest by stopping on the seventh day as God stopped on the seventh day, problem is Israel fails to do this as well. They don't. Doesn't quite work how we thought it might at the beginning of the Old Testament. And so, what happens? Christ comes in in the New Testament, and um, he actually gives rest for all those that would come to him. Look at Matthew. Uh, chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so Jesus becomes essentially for us the Sabbath rest. So he comes in, To actually do what Israel couldn't do, to do what uh, uh, Adam couldn't do, and take the kingdom of God and give that to people, allow people to access the kingdom of God. Which actually, the whole Old Testament is setting up the same idea that Matthew has been drilling home since the beginning of his gospel that we've been seeing on Sunday, is, he, is Christ is setting up this kingdom and telling people how they will have access to it. This is ex- precisely what we saw Israel was supposed to do and they couldn't. This is what Adam was supposed to do and he couldn't. And so Christ has accomplished what none of them could do. So um, basically for the Christian, Sunday is resting in exactly what Christ has accomplished. That's what Sunday is for us. Sunday should be a time where we come together in the assembled body, and we reflect precisely on what Christ has done for us. Notice that what Christ's language is there: "Come, all who labor and are heavy laden, and learn from me." Well, what Israel was doing is directing people to God. Christ is now centering that squarely on Him. Come and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You find rest for your souls. So the body of Christ, when they gather together on Sunday morning, that's the other thing that's changed. It's not the seventh day anymore. It's the first day of the week. Why is it the first day of the week? Why is it? Because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. That's why we shifted it. So we're making abundantly clear that our rest is only found in Christ. So when the body comes together and they worship Christ, and they invite other people into the worship of Christ, what's happening is that kingdom of God that was originally there commanded to Adam, that was then given to Israel, that's now given to Christ and that Christ accomplished, is spreading through the hearts of people in the community around us. So as we go outside and we evangelize and we tell them the gospel, gradually they begin to come under the kingdom of God and submit to his rule. And then they come into his worship, and they worship him in spirit and in truth. They worship him rightly. That's the spreading of the kingdom of God. So um, anyway, so when it comes to our worship on Sunday, or whether we are Sabbatarians and we say, don't you dare go watch a football game on Sunday, I don't think that's necessarily the purpose. But I do think it is that Sunday is reserved for you to take the day and reflect on Christ. And what he's done for you—that includes showing up to worship. That also includes—it uh, could include many other things. Uh, you hear—I hear from people sometimes like, you know, man, I want to read those books. I want to—I want to learn more about you know this particular topic in the scriptures, and I, I really want to dive in more to that. But I just don't have the time. What do you do on Sunday? That's what Sunday is for. That's what it's for. Now. Does that mean you can't watch a football game? I don't think so, but it should be primarily reserved for that. Uh, all right, moving on. Um, the fifth commandment gives us the way that we submit to God. Gives us the way that we submit to God. Um, he says, honor your father and mother is the, is the commandment. Um, now, what we also need to recognize in this is that insubordination in the law, insubordination to parents is a capital offense. This is one of those, this is one of those laws that it's hard to swallow. That you say, wow. They kill your kid because they disobey? Yes. Now why why why? Why would you do that? <laughs> why would you kill your kid because they disobey? Um, look at Exodus uh, twenty-one seventeen in your packet. There, we'll read the three the three verses that come after it. Exodus twenty-one seventeen. Whoever curses his father and mother, uh, or his mother, shall be put to death. It's not just simple disobedience. That, that, Kind of just a product of being sinful. Uh, but there's a cursing of the father and mother. Look at Leviticus 20, verse 9. For anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. Proverbs 20, verse 20. If one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. Um, So that's the first thing we have to understand that insubordination, or we should say cursing your father, your mother is a capital offense. So it's a very serious uh, issue. But then the Lord actually commands us uh, and he says that those that he loves, that he disciplines. And so what he tells to his people is that anybody that is, that the parents that are his children are to uh, initiate corporal correction with their children. They actually to spank them. Now, you have to ask at some point, why does God care how we discipline our children? Well, look at uh, Proverbs 23, 13 to 14. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. That's how I imagine it's supposed to be read. Um, if you strike him with a rod, what does it say? You will save his soul From Sheol. The concern is that the child would be faithful to the covenant. The concern is that they would be faithful to God by first learning how to be obedient to their parents. If they can't learn how to be obedient to their parents, they're never going to learn how to be obedient to God. That's the premise. They have to first learn how to be obedient to their parents. And what God has given them parents for is to discipline them and to correct them so that they'll understand what it means to submit and obey, believe it or not, so that it may go well with you and they may live long in the land. Why would they be kicked out of the land? Disobedience to the covenant. That's why they would be kicked out. Well, if you discipline them and if they understand what discipline is and they learn what discipline is, then there's a really good chance that they're going to be faithful to the covenant because they know what it means to submit. The the plain and simple truth of it is that most of the time, our view of God comes straight from our fathers. And if our fathers were abusive, it's going to be really hard for us to trust God. If our fathers were negligent and ran out it's going to be nearly impossible not to see God as one that's absentee we all know that to be true and it's true of children too go ahead what do you mean?
2: Frustrating? Yeah. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, Paul. But, but, but I'm just saying, so if parents are to initiate corporal correction with their children, mm. that has to be done well. Yes. I just wondered if there were biblical guidelines that parents might few. <laughs> few.
0: Few. Uh, so Yeah. Well, um, there, there there are uh There are few. And I do think that Paul adds the, the qualification in Ephesians 6 where he says, don't provoke your children. Don't exasperate them. Don't frustrate them. Um, so there are, there are certainly measures when, you, when it comes to spanking where um, that can get, that can, it can border on that, right? Very, very quickly. You had a, something you want to say?
1: Mm. my kids are my neighbors yeah. <laughs> and like
0: Yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, There's, um, I I, I think there are times where obviously uh, if I give a command to my children, I'm trying to help them learn to hear my voice and to respond to my voice because I want them to hear the voice of God. Not in me. I mean, I want them later to be able to hear the voice of God and respond to it. And so when I sense that they're getting to the point where they're, no, they're starting to tune out our voices, that's when they need to be reminded that there is such thing as corporal punishment. And I think the reason why corporal punishment is a thing, and this is not totally speculation, I, I think this is sort of where the scriptures are pointing, is that uh, it's a reminder to the child that there is a real hell, that there is a real punishment against the body. That will happen if you don't listen to the voice of God, and so there's this on this on this microcosm, there is uh, listening to my voice is you're you're supposed to obey, and if you don't, then there's a a correction that reminds you that there's a physical punishment related to disobedience, and um, and and it instills that kind of idea that hell actually makes sense in the end uh, because. I got my rear end swatted when I was a kid. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like the, the, that there's a connection between the two and, and God being a loving parent um, is is obviously communicating the same thing, I, th- I think to some degree. Yeah.
1: A good resource is an old book by Dobson called Dare to Discipline. Yeah. Yeah. A good
2: yeah.
0: Dare to Discipline. James Dobson.
2: My children never believed me when I said this hurts me more than it hurts. Me. <laughs>
0: And then they had a kid. Yeah, uh, there've been a couple times where that wasn't true, but but uh, most of the time it does hurt me more than it hurts them. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I I think that, and there there've been several people that have been really instrumental in just kind of forming my thoughts on it and, and helping me understand it. Um, a, a kids when when a child is very young too, they know how to disobey but they don't know rationale and reason. And the only logic that they understand is not hard even, just a swat. And that makes total sense. That's all the logic I needed. <laughs> you know? And the vast majority of a child's spankings, uh, if it's, I think if it's done right, will probably all come before five. You know, the vast majority of them will. But um, it's, a lot of that has fallen out of favor with our culture, especially my generation and I think that's really unfortunate because I don't think it's biblical um, to, to withhold that kind of punishment when, when necessary. Um, but we could get into Freudian uh, psychology and all that, and we won't uh, at all. So the, uh, the, <laughs> the sixth commandment, uh, and we're going we're gonna to go through a few of these pretty quick because I want to get to the end to work back. Um, so the sixth commandment commands us to protect our neighbor's life. Now, uh, you'll notice a little bit of a theme here. So just see if you can pick pick up on it. The sixth commandment commands us to protect our neighbor's life. The seventh commandment commands us to protect our neighbor's family. The eighth commandment commands us to protect our neighbor's property. So it's life, family, property. The ninth commandment commands us to protect our neighbor's reputation. Life, family, property, reputation. Do you see it? Kind of backing off, getting less and less severe as the commandments go on. Then we get to the final tenth one, which I think undergirds it all, which uh, the tenth commandment commands us to protect what God has given to our neighbor. So I think the actual, the the last uh, five commandments are really designed to kind of take you from actually working backwards, 10 all the way back to six is they get progressively more severe. Fundamentally, protect what the Lord has given to your neighbor. In other words, don't covet it. Don't look at it and want what your neighbor has, whether that be his wife or his house or his property or whatever he has. Don't look at that and want it. And then it progressively gets more severe the further back you go till you go reputation, his property, his family, his life. How do we treat one another? We treat him with such respect that each one is entitled to his own property and I'm not coveting that property and I actually to love my neighbor as myself want to go above and beyond to help protect that for him does that make sense? secure that Um, the second table of the law seems to work from the most severe commandment the sixth um, all the way back to the underlying premise in the tenth of loving your neighbor as yourself the last few minutes that we got. Are there any questions, comments? (laughs) (laughs) I had a feeling that this question was going to come, and I should have known the finance
2: professor would (laughs) have...
0: I'm going to let Bob Brooks be the authority on that. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. Go ahead, Ronnie. The thing you mentioned about corporal punishment, it actually tells you the
2: instrument to use is a reed like rod. So I big it, and it doesn't say your
1: hand, but I've got a switch. got bruised up on a switch. Yeah. As our, much as this punishment was, was waiting on, for our house it was a wooden spoon. Yeah waiting on to go get the bench. Yep. That was as bad as Oh, well, having
0: pick it out is even worse. We ca- we call it a sad spoon.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and uh they don't want the sad spoon. Don't want the sad spoon. Would so your happy spoon dip ice cream? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right.
1: Not,
0: yes. The, the happy spoon is literally every other spoon in the house. <laughs> but, but yeah, sad spoon is not a good spoon. Not a good spoon at all in our house. In fact, we're, we're, dry, we're going through the, the grocery store. I got them in the grocery cart. All three kids. We're going through... And they got the wooden spoons hanging on the, you know, in the middle of the shelf, hanging hanging down on the hooks, you know, down the selling them. And, the, and then they go, "Hey, they sell sad spoons here <laughs> in the middle of <laughs> And all the parents are just snickering, you know. <laughs> why would a grocery store sell a sad spoon? Yeah, yeah, because kids act up in the grocery store. That's why.
2: <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. sort of thing. I think Charles Payne, if y'all are familiar with him, he works through the, is it Ramsey? Or did he come out of the... Uh,
1: He's on Fox Business Network.
2: Yeah. Supposedly, there's going to be a debate or a town hall meeting helping people to see what socialism is versus yeah. capitalism. Yeah. Because so many of the millennials think capitalism is no good, and uh, there's a lot to be said for mm. socialism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't know when it's supposed to be aired. Mm. I think it may be tomorrow night sometime. Yeah, I, don't know if I think w- interested w-
0: in that. you know one of the m- more disturbing aspects of of the whole. I, I don't. I'm not necessarily trying to step into politics right now, but um, one of the more disturbing aspects of all of it is that it, uh, it's there seems to be a um, a lot of the arguments for it are built on. Um, looking at what somebody else has. And that is a, there's a fundamental problem there um, that it's built on that. Um, I, I, somebody posed the question one time, and I think it's a good one, is if, uh, w- would you be okay with all of the world's poverty going away if it meant that the richest people in the world got 20 times richer? Nobody was impoverished anymore, but the rich got 20 times richer. And if the answer is no, then you're greedy and jealous, basically. <laughs> um, you know, it, but the, it's a good way to think about it. But I, I, I do think that a lot of what I hear is built on, uh, again, like Bob said, working against what's commanded in Scripture to not look at another person's property and covet that, that property. Um, the, the, the other side of that is uh, what I, what I think some of this underscores and and maybe this is maybe some people in the culture are picking up on this is that there there is a need for us as, as a church body, not just EBC I mean the church as a whole to, um, to continue to serve the poor and to continue to reach toward people who don't have and what I think a lot of people in our culture are wanting the government to do the church is built to do and I, and and so i there's a lot of things that we could talk about here obviously but um but i think the, the blame does go around you know and everybody takes a little piece of it and right the poor and, uh, right 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 Right. To give.
1: Right. And if we continue to grow right. our church,
0: then we will have a better opportunity yep. to be able to
1: yep. give and serve.
0: That's right, and and that's a um, those are those are fundamental fundamental to our existence as a church is is doing that. And when you look at the Old Testament and the prophets, what they're condemning the Jews for doing is for neglecting the poor. I mean that I mean it's all over almost every prophet is harping on that and you know god forbid the church be guilty of the same thing of you know ta- hoarding wealth and not ha- not having ways of helping the poor. That comes that's fraught with a lot of difficulty in our culture because there's a lot of there are a lot of times where it's now it's in some cases and all you have to do is work on a church staff and you'll see this but in some cases it's a, pri- a prideful thing to be poor in some cases for some people to make your money off of other people giving you money and not having to actually work it. Um, and that's difficult, so you have to sort through some of that too. And so it's fraught with difficulty. It's not just an easy thing that you can just throw money at, it's, but it's got to be thought about and, and done carefully and done wisely, but it, it, it needs to be done. It's certainly the church's responsibility. Okay, Go ahead.
1: Like actually, Everything
0: in your life. Yes.
1: Yeah. Right. Like, but how to worship specifically pertains to
0: Sunday or the or whatever. Right. Like, is that what they're speaking about? Um. Yeah. In um. So answer, let me answer it both ways. For on the first part of the question, Paul actually makes the argument: um, your your life is actually a a living sacrifice. Um, so you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. So you, everywhere you go, everything that you do is for the Lord, whether you're working or whether you're doing whatever. Um, when, it, when it pertains to worship, there are certain things that we're commanded to do in Scripture and that God has governed. This is how you are to worship me. Uh, when you come together, Paul says, uh, sing songs and hymns, spiritual songs to each other and to the Lord, um, lifting up holy hands and praying, uh, reading of Scripture, preaching the Word, uh, taking part in the Lord's Supper and Baptism. Uh, those things are, are fundamental, and they should all be done in a worship service. There are things that are governed in what they, what they will do in a worship service on Sabbath, the, sixth, the seventh day of the week, and then some of that spills over to us on the first day of the week. So, yeah, b- both and.
1: Right. And then I'm proclaiming that, right? Yep. But if I took that picture and said, the heavens declare the glory of God. So I'm going to take this and I'm going to put it in my bathroom. And every day I'm going to stare at it and talk to it or sing a song to God as I look at it because
0: this is a way that, I don't know, I think maybe yeah. there's a difference. There. Well, and the same would be true of Jim Caviezel. I mean, he walks in, dresses Jesus, and you, you bow down and worship him. He's the, he was the guy in the Passion. He was the, oh. the, he was the Jesus in the Passion. Oh. He, he walks in and you, and you, you know, you bow down and worship and that's a that's a problem. Um, but the same would be true, I think, of of making an image um, that would represent God himself, mm-hmm. I think, would be that would be a, a fundamental problem. So the cruc- the cross, how that, how that yeah, you, you will don't worship it. Um, it does, it is, a, it is a symbol, I think, of like anything else, uh, that Jews would be commanded to decorate their homes that with things that would remind them of the covenant. And I think the same would be true of Christians. We decorate our homes with crosses or images that remind us of who we are and remind people that come in of who we are. Uh, but we shouldn't worship those things. And we should, uh, and if, I, I suppose there could be a scenario where you're tempted to remove them. Uh, that would be the, yeah, nothing is to replace him. Who is invisible? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right, let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time to just gather together and study um, your word and and to think about how it applies to us and the things that um, govern us as a church. And I pray, Father, that the worship that goes on here um, on Sunday mornings and and would be true and of the spirit and um, that it would, what comes out of my mouth at the pulpit or what comes out of the singer's mouths as, as they lead and what comes out of our mouths in the pew and um, what's read and what's thought about and what's taught would all be um, true and right and, um, and, and, tr- and, and truly coming to you with humble, humble attitudes and humble spirits and desiring to uh, feed on what you are to give us. Um, we desperately require um, access to your presence, and we are so grateful that we have it through Christ and through Christ alone. May we go outside these walls and share that with other people. In Jesus' name, amen.